In fact, John, uh, second epistle of John is one of the shortest books in the Bible. In Greek, it's made up of just about 500 words, Greek words. So, second letter of John. Greeting. The elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth. Because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you've heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, and may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you, and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I'd rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face, so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this book. And even though it's short, Lord, it's full of your truth. And now, Lord, as we study it, we just pray that you'll open our hearts and minds. And we just ask that you'll illuminate and give us understanding. And Lord, we just pray that you'll take my words, and the words that are not of you will just disappear and be forgotten. But Lord, we just ask that you will speak to us now through this book. In Jesus' name. Amen. So, just a very quick background. Um, tradition has it that John left Jerusalem 
in the late 60s, just before the fall of Jerusalem, and made his home in modern-day Turkey around Ephesus. And it was there that he was based. And again, authorship, tradition tells us it's uh, the Apostle John. Um, although, as with his other books, he's just known as the Elder. And that could speak of his age and his office. Because by this time, he was the sole surviving apostle when the book was written. And so everybody would have known about him, and a lot of people would have heard him speak and heard uh, his write and read his writings. So in that way, he wouldn't have had to sign his name. He'd have been recognized as the author. It was written towards the end of the first century. Um, scholars think it between 85 and 90 AD. And it was written as a series. You had one John, and then you had John, the second letter of John, and then the third letter of John, which someone will be speaking on next week. But even though it's a small book, there's some controversy. So just as I was preparing, there seems to be an awful lot of material written questioning who on earth was this mystery lady, the lady elect. Two possibilities. We don't know for sure. It could have been an individual that John was writing to. Um, uh, we've got an example of that in Acts where you had uh, Lydia, who was an individual lady, whose house the fellowship met in. And the lady could have been possibly a gracious hostess that looked after John and then opened her house up to the ministry of the local church. Or John is referring to the idea that it's a personification of a church or local congregation. And the whom in the Greek is masculine. And also John moves from the singular and plural, using the singular and plural pronouns, uh, to and fro in the book. And again, as we do, it's possible to personify towns and places like we do, she referring to city or whatever. Okay, and again, I tend to follow the second, but we don't know. And there's been an awful lot of discussion about it, and we still don't know. So I would tend to follow the second interpretation, but to be honest, it doesn't matter. Again, children are referred to. It, they could be the children of, of the elected lady, or they could be members of the local fellowship. So, 
let's move on. Uh, can we go back? Okay. Now, one of the things that I really picked up as I began to study this book, this small book, was the emphasis on truth. I've given the talk the title, Walking in the Truth. But thinking about it, we live in a world that doesn't understand what truth is. We can go right back to the 18th century um, where people did believe in absolute truth, absolute right, absolute wrong. They believed in a framework of absolutes. However, philosophically, things changed and you got thesis, antithesis, synthesis. You got an amalgamation of what people believed as truth and what people believed as wrong. And that's worked its way through to today, where we have got uh, relativism, the idea of situation ethics, anything goes, and this idea that true truth no longer applies. We've moved away from this idea of living and believing in a situation where we have absolute right, absolute wrong. Bob Dylan said, all truth in the world adds up to one big lie. And what I want to do is introduce a definition of truth. Truth is that which is constant and unchangeable. Something on which someone can rely on, which will prove to be true in the future. And that was written and is credited to Dr. Alfred Jepson, who was an Old Testament theologian in Germany. But also, we have here a quote from Augustine, one of the church fathers, who said, when I found truth, there found I, my God, who is truth itself. And so that's my starting point. I want to set that out as a framework that we're going to look at because John clearly knew and had this framework, this uh, understanding of what truth is. And so when we look at the first three verses, we've got the importance of truth. And we look at verse 1. Why, in fact, if we look at the, those three verses, truth is mentioned four times. And in John 14, verse 6, we have Jesus Christ is the truth. In John 17 and verse 17, it says God's word is truth the truth. And in John 14, verses 16 and 17, and again in chapter 16, verse 13, God has given us the spirit of truth to teach us and enable us to know the truth. I'll say that again. God has given us the spirit of truth to teach us and to enable us to know 
the truth. If we move on, verse 2. Because the truth that abides in us and will be forever. All truth centers on Christ Jesus, who is the eternal Son with whom we shall live forever. I just very quickly go back, I'll go back to John. I just read those first six verses. And Jesus is speaking. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe, believe also in me, me. In my Father's house and many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and it will take and I will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you have known me, you will have known my Father also. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. So the truth is going to be with us forever. I just want to throw in an aside here. One of the amazing things that is going to happen when we get to heaven we're going to spend eternity. And because of who God is, we are never, ever going to reach the end of God. We are going to spend the whole of eternity getting to know him better and better. Then in verse 3, It says, grace and mercy and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. And in that verse, John is affirming the deity of Jesus Christ. What he has done, he has joined the title, Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, and God the Father. And he's put them together. And to emphasize that, he's added that little phrase, the Father's Son. We cannot separate the two. And that's going to be important as we look further on in the book of John. So, know the truth. When we move on to verses six, uh, 4 to 6, we have got this idea of walking in the truth, walking in obedience, and walking in love. But interestingly, in verse 4, John has said, 
I greatly rejoice to find some of your children. I think it's quite sad if we just make a quick reference to verse 7, where it says, for many deceivers. And that just, those, some, many. And that idea, as I was thinking about it, saddened me. Because the Bible says that there are going to be many who do depart from God's ways. And they are going to be drawn away and seduced by false teachers. But he does say, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children. And so that some of those people that were following God and following his commandments brought joy to him. And when God sees us, when he sees us obeying him, that does bring joy to God our Father. But looking at these three verses, the word command or commanded appears four times. And so these commandments are given by the Father. And John is saying that our obedience is an expression of our love. Now, John is actually sending a postcard after his first epistle. And so he does actually make some references back. And so in John 1 and verse 5, uh, chapter 5, 1 John 5, chapter 5, verse 3, it says... For this is the love of God, that we can keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. And when we come on to look at what God says, uh, John says, about the false teachers, we know that for a lot of false teachers and lots of groups that don't follow and have rejected Christianity and set themselves up as cults and things like that, we know that often the commands that they have are very harsh and difficult to follow. And a lot of people caught up in cults are caught up in bondage and a need to follow the rules. That is the ultimate rather than having a relationship with God. And so that's just a thought as we, in a moment, move on to later in the book. But again, we can go back to John 13. John 13 and verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. But, in verse 5, 
It says, now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had before from the beginning. Is that a contradiction? We've got a new commandment in John's Gospel, and then in John, the second letter of John, it's talking about the beginning. I don't think so, if, because if we look back, because John is referring back in this instance to the Old Testament, where God's people were called to be a people to demonstrate God living amongst them in the society and in the country around. They were supposed to be a beacon, a light, demonstrating the fact that God lived amongst them and they could demonstrate that with their lifestyle. And just one verse, or two verses in Leviticus, Leviticus 19 and verse 18. Leviticus 19 verse 18 says, You should not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any son of the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbour as yourself. I am the Lord. And so, in the Old Testament, we have got this idea, this command of God commanding us, or commanding his people, to love the sons of their own people. And in the same chapter, Leviticus 19, verse 34. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you, stays with you, remains with you, as a native amongst you. And you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And so way back in the Old Testament, we have... This command, God's command to his Old Testament people to love those. Um, and then John says in his Gospel of John, a new commandment. I don't think it's a contradiction because we have a new emphasis with Jesus. Jesus is introducing a new relationship. He's bringing other people besides the Jews into that relationship. And that new experience, that command to love, the Holy Spirit enable us and his people to obey. This idea of love and obedience together. And I just want to just turn back to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4 and verses 20 and 21. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. He does not love his brother, whom he, whom he has, not, has seen, cannot love God. I'll say that again. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he hasn't seen. And so, 
these three verses, walking in truth, walking in obedience, and walking in love. I just, just I was playing about and just thought about that. And uh, if I had a title to give it, I'd call it the victorious circle, not the vicious circle, the victorious circle, where truth leads to love and obedience. Obedience, following the truth, love. Obedience, following the truth, loving others. Now we move on to the next section where John begins to talk about those who do not hold on to the truth. Next. Okay. Okay. Now, I'm going to read this section. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such as one is a deceiver and the Antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who, does, who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him a greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. So John goes on to say that many deceivers have gone out from the church. Where have they gone out from? They've gone out from the church. And so many of the cults, the false teachers, have come from the church. We can just go back to the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, in fact, Muhammad, he had contact with Christians before he actually started to write and develop the religion of Islam. However, he had and was presented with a wrong view of Jesus because all of these groups call into question either God's or Jesus' divinity or his humanity. So we look at verses 8 and 9, and I can see here two dangers. The first danger is losing the truth taking away from what Jesus Christ has done. So losing the truth and taking away from what Jesus has done. And then the second danger is running ahead of the truth and adding to what he has done. And all the cults and the heresies that have developed have done one or two of those things. They either have taken away from his divinity or they've taken away 
from Jesus' humanity. And again, John, at this time, writing at the end of the first century, was beginning to see this false teaching, this heresy that was lurking around. And Paul addresses it as well. Peter does as well. But you're beginning to see false teaching springing up and you have got various ideas coming into the club, into, into the church. Gnosticism, or in this case it would have been an early form of Gnosticism, which rejected Jesus and his work of salvation. An emphasis on hidden secret knowledge and the way you actually moved into that, you gained this extra knowledge. And you began to see that. That became full-blown heresy in the 2nd and 3rd century. I said I'd get some church history. But then, throughout the next, well, during that time, you had these attacked, attacks on the divinity or the humanity of Christ. And therefore, you got these creeds developing. The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Constantinople Creed, and the Chalcedon Creed. All were there to address the heresy that was coming into the church. And a creed is a doctrinal statement outlining correct belief, which was developed in times of conflict. And again, we begin to see this attack on Jesus' divinity or humanity. And the thing was about the Apostles' Creed, all it was was a selection of statements about the faith. It didn't overtly say that Jesus was divine and the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, and didn't really explain the Trinity. And so that meant that error, and people kind of like took those ideas and false teaching developed. And you had the Nicene Creed in about 325, which began to address Jesus being God's son. And there were still some problems because it didn't address the relationship of the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit connected and things like that. So you had the Constantinople Creed, which affirmed the Holy Spirit as the third person and part of the Trinity. But there was still an issue where you had heresy coming in, where people were still misunderstanding and attacking Jesus' divinity or his humanity. And this is where you had the Chalcedon Council and Creed. And here they outlined in 46 lines clearly that Jesus was one person but with two natures. And uh, you, they started to, they, they developed this phrase, the hypostatic union, hypostasis, hypostasis, 
this idea that Jesus in his body had two natures. It's one of those things that, for me, makes sense, but I don't really understand. Um, I'll just, I, this is where I would normally draw it. But if you imagine, and this is where illustrations, I have to, I, I let you know that illustrations fall down, and you know they can be criticised. But for me, I'm visual, a visual learner. I learn things visually. I want you to imagine the Godhead, the Triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in all their majesty, splendour, glory, power. There. And here we have got humanity, with all its brokenness, with all its sin, with all its hatred for everything God stands for. And you've got this massive, great gap. Now, the idea that if you took Jesus and just his divinity, he could not bridge that gap from the divine to our world. It's not, you know, I don't see how that was possible, just in just his divinity. Jesus could not bridge that gap between the Godhead and sinful world just with his humanity. Some people, some modern teachers are saying that perhaps he could, that perhaps Jesus was just a man that had a perfect relationship with God from the Holy Spirit, but they reject his humanity. So Jesus cannot bridge that gap with just his humanity. You need a combination of his divinity and his humanity that comes together. And that is our, my conviction. And if we have the next slide. Jesus Christ is the perfect God-man. He is both truly human and truly divine. Any teaching that deviates from this central bedrock of truth is suspect. And so I just want to state categorically that we believe Jesus is both fully human and fully divine. And I just want to just go through a few verses. If you're taking notes, just write them down. I'll just read them. But he's fully human because he had to be a man. Slide 11, please. Because he had to die on the cross and pay the penalty of our sins so that the demands of God's righteousness and justice can be satisfied. Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Hebrews 9, verse 22. His conception was supernatural. It was the Holy Spirit that caused Jesus to be formed in Mary's womb. Jesus, as a result, Jesus had a, sinful nat a sinless nature. 
a sinless nature. And the uniqueness of Jesus Christ, living a sinless life, from the very entry of the, his entry into the world until his departure, we just see a whole series of miracles. And he was fully human because the Bible said so. It says so. Another thing that said, uh, says that he's human, he had to be a man to, in order to you know, identify with man's vulnerability to temptation, yet without falling into sin. Hebrews 4 and verse 15. Christ came to show us that he could fulfill all the demands as a perfect man. So that's his humanity, truly human, but he's also truly divine. 13. He is divine, spotless and untainted by sin, so that one, a once and for all sacrifice of his life is counted as worthy to redeem men, pay the penalty for sin. Spiritual death or eternal separation from God. He could do that. He provided that once and for all sacrifice. And in Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, Jesus asked that God the Father glory, to glorify him with the glory they both shared before the world was made. Jesus also prayed that the believers were, would be one as he and the Father are one. So, he's divine. And it's just a small point, but if God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, can he change? If God is immutable, that means unchanging over time, or unable to be changed. Can God's Son, Jesus, put off and put on his divinity? No. Jesus is both divine and has that humanity. Two natures in one body. But also, Jesus has the power to forgive sin. And we've got the story in Mark 2, before the healing of the paralytic, the one that was left, let down through the roof. Uh, Jesus demonstrated his authority and ability to forgive sins. He healed the man, he forgave sins. And also, Jesus forgave the woman caught in the act of adultery in John 8. If Jesus was merely a man filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, as some would believe us, have us believe, when he walked this earth, we would still be dead in our sins. We have an incredible Saviour who is both human and divine. Truly human, truly divine. And he's calling us into a relationship with him. And so if 
you're here to look and you're interested in Jesus, find out more. But there may come a time, today perhaps, where you call on him and ask him for his forgiveness and come to a point where you recognize he is the truth. He is the way. He is the life. And that point may be for you where you make that decision to turn your life round and instead of going your way, choose to go his way. The Bible calls that repentance. So that's a point and that's a decision that we all have to make. We need to accept. Many people will reject, sadly, but we can choose to follow him. But if that's your position, talk to someone, pray with someone. If you've come with a Christian friend, ask them to pray with you so that you can come into this relationship with Jesus. Because we want what God has called us to do. Because if we abide in his teaching, in verse 9, we have the Father and the Son. But this finally comes along to our final third danger in verses 10 and 11. Sadly, many Christians today are going with and mixing with false teaching. And there's a call for discernment. Historically, John was talking to people that would actually be moving around, spreading the false gospel. But what they expected to do is they moved into a town. They would expect the church to support them, provide them uh, hospitality, and give them that opportunity to share their false teaching. And so John is addressing this. But today, so the house was there where they received uh, people, friendship, and that was what John was warning them about. However, I was thinking about today. How can false teaching come into our lives? And I just got a few points that as I go through, I'd ask you just to consider carefully. First point was, know what people believe and teach before supporting them. Know what people believe and teach before supporting them. Because if they're teaching a false gospel, it's very clear we support them in that. We are taking part in their wicked works. Another point, are there any areas in my life, in our lives, where I am supporting things that I know are wrong? 
are there any areas in our lives, my life, where I'm supporting things which I know are wrong? Number three, have I been silent when I should have been outspoken for the truth? Have I been silent when I should have been outspoken for the truth? Number four, have I lowered my standards of right and wrong to maintain a friendship or gain some advantage? Have I lowered my standards of right and wrong to maintain a friendship or gain some advantage? A more difficult one, perhaps, is there a relationship that needs to be broken which is dragging me down? Is there a relationship that needs to be broken or dealt with which is dragging me down? Six is a, I throw this one out, you might disagree with me. Is there some music or books teaching that I'm listening to or reading which may be suspect? John has already mentioned from the front about Jesus' music. I'll leave that there. And then finally, is there a friend or relative who's placed his or her faith in a lie? Are there people that we know who are following false teachers? Now, Looking at what John is going to be doing later on in the next couple of weeks when we look at Jude, Jude addresses a lot more of these issues. But as I was preparing this, looking at John, and the emphasis that John has on the truth, I just want to leave you with a quote. Hold on to the truth. And it's quote by John Stott. And hold on to that and remember that victorious circle of love, truth and obedience. So the final quote is, Our love is not so blind as to ignore the views and conduct of others. Truth should make our lives our love discriminating. On the other hand, we must champion the truth. We must never champion the truth in a harsh or bitter spirit. We must never champion force the truth in a harsh or bitter spirit. So the Christian fellowship should be marked equally by love and truth. And we are to avoid the dangerous tendency to extremism, pursuing either at the expense of the other. Our love grows soft if it's not strengthened by truth, and our truth grows hard if it's not softened by love. We need to live according to the scripture which commands us to love each other in the truth and hold the truth in love.
I'll leave that up there and I will close with that. I'll just pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for John, the book of John, and what you can teach us through it. Father, we just thank you that he loved the truth. And that's synonymous with you, Lord. You are truth. And Father, we just pray that we will know you, the truth. That we will live the truth with you at the very centre of our lives. And that we will hold on to the truth. We won't be pulled away or persuaded by any false teaching. And that we will recognise who you are, our glorious Saviour. Jesus, we just thank you that you did lay aside your rights and privileges. You didn't lay aside your divinity, but you chose to lay aside your rights and privileges as the second person of the Trinity. And you came and lived amongst us as a perfect man, showing us the way we could live if we can live if we follow you. Father, we just thank you that you sent Jesus. And Jesus, we just thank you that you came so that if we choose to follow you, we can have that incredible relationship that is going to be lasting forever. So, Father, we just thank you. We just pray that you'll cause us to meditate and think on these things, that we will live, we will know the truth, live the truth, and hold on to the truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.